Greetings, TPN. Welcome back to another episode of the Pilot Network Podcast. Joe here once again. And today I'm going to start out with the obligatory disclaimer and then we will get right into it. Everything contained in today's episode is not to be considered legal advice, nor is it to be considered medical advice. Everything contained herein is for informational purposes only. That said, today's guest is once again Dr. Keith Roxo of Wingman Med. And Dr. Roxo has been on the podcast before, once with Matt and once with me a few months back. And today we talk specifically about pilot mental health. In particular, we discuss how the FAA views pilot mental health, what is and is not considered reportable to the FAA on your annual medical or to your AME otherwise, some of the pitfalls of self-care versus or self-pay rather versus allowing your insurance to cover the bill. And we also talk about unraveling childhood diagnoses, some special considerations for military. We also talk a little bit about PTS versus PTSD and some examples of both of those and how those can be handled. So stick around. Please enjoy this episode with Dr. Keith Roxo. Keith, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our last conversation, and I've recommended it to a number of my coworkers, friends, um, et cetera. And after that recording, you and I were chatting about the possibility of doing an episode solely focused on pilot mental health, and in particular, navigating the FAA's processes in that regard. And you enlightened me as to the realities of that. And I think that a lot of the misconceptions that I had are fairly common and that a lot of pilots have these same misconceptions about how the FAA does and does not look at mental health. So I thought that might be a great place for us to start today to set the stage for the rest of our conversation. So could you just give us your view about how the FAA views mental health and mental health concerns when it comes to pilot medical certification? Sure. The first thing is to understand that the FAA takes a very serious look at mental health. Um, and there's a few reasons for that. So, you know, 9-11 has shown us that aircraft, especially large airline sized aircraft can be weapons of mass destruction. And then the German wings accident in 2015, uh, murder suicide effectively of everybody on board that airplane showed that somebody with symptomatic mental health conditions should not be flying aircraft. And then when you look at John Travolta, he is, a wealthy enough person and has enough connections that he can fly almost any size aircraft he wants. So I believe at one point he had a Boeing 707 and he was flying off of a third class medical. So sometimes people will say, well, I don't want to be a professional. Why is it such a big deal? Well, because you can fly anything with a third class medical. You just may not have the opportunity or the funds or the means. So people think that the FAA treats mental health differently, but they really don't. And that's one of the things that people struggle with. You can't fly with symptomatic heart disease, just like you can't fly with symptomatic depression. So if you have a heart attack, you have to recover, follow all of the treatment guidelines and pass all of the required testing. If you have depression, you need to recover, 
follow all of the treatment guidelines and pass all of the testing. So they treat it exactly the same. And then another thing we hear people say frequently is, well, I can't go get help because the FAA won't let me fly. And that is also not true. So for example, if you're a basketball player, like a professional basketball player, like LeBron James, he is frequently battling little injuries. And I believe he has a massage therapist on his staff. Well, if you're playing pickup basketball and you get really sore and you decide, you know what, I'm going to go to a massage therapist to you know, try and work out some of these knots in my muscles. Do you have to report that to the FA? No, you don't. But if you're playing pickup basketball and you tear a ligament in your knee and you have to go to an orthopedic surgeon and have surgery, do you have to report that to the FA? Absolutely. Right. Or you're playing pickup basketball and you have a heart attack. Do you have to report that to the FA? Absolutely. Well, if you're going through some struggles in life, let's say you're getting a divorce or you have a loved one that died and you're starting to struggle with it. Well, don't wait until it's so bad that you are the equivalent of a heart attack. Don't wait until you're in full blown depression. If you go to a marriage counselor or a life coach, you don't have to report that to the FAA. But if you wait until you're so bad that you're in a full on depression or you're contemplating your own suicide and you need medication and a psychiatrist, then absolutely, yes, you do have to report that to the FAA. So I think what happens is people are so afraid to get any help that they get no help until it's too late and they need serious help. I, you made a number of what I think are really pertinent points there. We're definitely going to come back to things being reportable or not reportable. And one thing I wanted to mention in my research for this conversation, as it often does, it led me to Reddit, and I would just advise pilots to stay off of Reddit in general because there's a lot of misinformation. But there were a lot of people who, based on their posts, were taking the FAA's stance very personally. Mm-hmm. And they were thinking, well, the FAA doesn't want me to fly. And I and I think you said this very well. That's not the FAA's job. They're here to protect the public, not to make sure that pilots can fly. Um, right. They provide a path towards getting a medical certification, and it's your role to be on that path when the when the time comes. So I just wanted to um, throw that in there. And I wanted to take a bit of a, a, a back step here, uh, or what might seem like a big back step, and talk about pilots evaluating their own medical readiness on a day-to-day basis. Of course, we all know the I'm safe checklist, which really is just a way for us to remember our, some of the components of evaluating our own medical readiness. And like you said, medical readiness includes physical and mental health. And with all of the things that you have done, you're a professional pilot, you're a doctor, you're an AME, and you have a company where you do medical consulting for pilots. In your opinion, what are some ways that a pilot can think about evaluating their own readiness on a day-to-day basis, in particular, maybe when they're in that gray zone of fly or not fly? How do you draw some delineating lines or how might we as pilots draw those delineating lines for ourselves? I think the best way to handle that is to try and separate yourself from the situation and think about it from, if I were the captain of an airliner, would I want me as my co-pilot right now? And it's difficult, but you have to try and make an honest assessment of that. If I wouldn't want me as a co-pilot, then I probably shouldn't be flying right now. 
All right. That I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think even taking it to the next step and envisioning a certain person, a certain coworker, and saying, if I don't want that person flying, do I want it's not more safe because it's me. Right. So right. great. All right. I appreciate the clarification there. I wanted to come I wanted to come back to whether things are reportable or not. And the reason I wanna tackle this kind of up front is that pilots tend when they look to solve a problem, they're trying to find non-reportable ways to do it. So I wanted to get your thoughts on what makes a mental health appointment reportable. Is it the type of professional they see? Is it the presence of a diagnosis? Is it whether or not they are or think they are protected under HIPAA? What, what are your thoughts there? So HIPAA definitely doesn't apply because you are required to disclose to the FAA and HIPAA does not prevent you from disclosing. And we do get that question frequently. What makes the FAA entitled to my HIPAA information? Well, they're not entitled. You are also not entitled to fly. So they set the criteria for medical certification and you have to meet it. Now, as far as the diagnoses or the types of professionals, so those are kind of two different things. So when you get to the section that asks about medical conditions, those are the lifetime conditions. So have you ever in your life had dot, 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 and it asks a bunch of questions. So if you have had a diagnosis or you currently have a diagnosis, that is reportable. Now, who's qualified to give you those diagnoses? That's a different story. So there's what we call medical counseling and non-medical counseling. So with that, this kind of goes into the getting help early standpoint, right? So non-medical counselors are going to be um, effectively counselors or therapists, but they are not necessarily psychologists or psychiatrists, and they are typically not licensed clinical social workers. So those three groups of people in particular are required to be reported under the medical appointments. So at that one of those later sections in MedExpress, uh, tell me about the medical appointments for the last three years. If it's a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a nurse practitioner who works in psychiatry or a physician assistant who works in psychiatry, those are reportable. A licensed clinical social worker is reportable. Also reportable is a non-medical counselor if it is for the express purpose of substance use. So, and that makes sense. They want to know about substance use. But any other type of counselor or therapist that does not meet those qualifications is not reportable. So that kind of goes back to the get help early, right? If you're having trouble in your marriage, go see a marriage counselor, try and work that problem out before it becomes a significant issue. The other thing is sometimes people are a little cheap, right? Well, if I go through my insurance, I can go see a psychiatrist and I don't have to pay anything out of pocket because I'm already paying insurance. Well, physicians and psychiatrists through your insurance company, if you don't pay them, who does? The insurance company does. The insurance company doesn't pay them if they didn't do anything. So how do they get paid? They have to document your diagnosis and what you did. So historically, when you're going in for a mental health evaluation, they should be trying to get a good, clear picture of you over several sessions. And they will typically start with a broad differential diagnosis. Well, he has symptoms of X, Y, and Z, but I'm not really sure about anyone yet. And it will take a couple of more sessions to really drill down. And in the end, you may not have a disorder, right? You may not have a psychiatric disorder. You may just have some struggles, but if they want to get paid, 
they're going to diagnose you with something. So if you want to be cheap or be late to the party and have significant symptoms, you're going to get diagnosed with something. And now you have a diagnosable condition. So not only do you have an appointment that you have to report, you also have a diagnosable condition. Now I do want to highlight, I am in no way, shape or form telling people to not get help. This is all about get help early so it doesn't become a massive problem. And if you get help early via non-medical counselors, if they're able to help you, fantastic. If they are not, okay, then you do need to elevate it. And then if you elevate it, well, maybe you aren't the co-pilot you want to fly with right now based on your symptoms. I think that this point about insurance versus self-pay is really critical because I can imagine a scenario where a pilot sees a therapist, maybe couples counseling, something of that order, and everything is good as far as the pilot knows, and then the bill comes along, and all of a sudden, well, guess what? Surprise, the billing office added a code in order to get paid that doesn't re that reflects a diagnosis that wasn't ever actually discussed in session. Right, and we have seen a lot of situations like that uh, in particular, there's a decent number of folks leaving the military and for disability purposes, um, they will come out with a diagnosis that they did not ask for and they did not intend. But the FAA, again, operating from a position of safety, they are assuming that the doctors that saw you are doing things correctly and until proven otherwise. So in those situations, sometimes people do get incidental or accidental diagnoses like that. Then it's very important to prepare for that exam, right? If we can go back and show, here's the documentation that resulted in this diagnosis. This documentation is garbage. The FAA will then say, oh yeah, we agree. That, that documentation is garbage, here's your medical. So it's very important to be able to show that. So if somebody does end up in that situation, that doesn't mean it's the end of the world. You should not hide that. You should go ahead and let the FAA know, but then be prepared to show them why it was a garbage diagnosis to begin with. Got it. And if we have time at the end, I want to come back to unraveling some of those diagnoses because I think that there are a lot of situations where this can happen for people. Um, before we get there, I wanted to address something that you just mentioned, and that is the idea that the FAA is assuming that the medical professional is doing things properly. And when a pilot seeks medical, medical or mental health help, there's finding the right type of professional and finding the right person. And those can be very different things. If you need a psychiatrist for whatever you're dealing with, you still want to find one that's going to go about this in a mindful way. Do you have any thoughts about when the time comes and you've already chosen the type of professional that you need to see just kind of in those first couple of sessions, what you should mention, maybe what you want to hold back on in the first couple of sessions before you figure out who this person is that you're talking to or how, or how to think about that. I'm, I'm stumbling a little bit here, but. That's kind of a tough one, right? We think it really comes down to having a good primary care physician who ideally is going to know other doctors in different specialties in the area. So that when you do have an issue, if you have a good trusted primary care physician, they can refer you to other doctors that ideally are also good. Um, that's something that we try and do is we try and recommend to people that we've worked with. Once we hear good things about a doctor and we see the quality of their work, we will start to recommend them to pilots, whether that's AMEs or specific specialists 
for different types of evaluations. This is one of the reasons why we wrote an article also on direct primary care. If you want to have a doctor that has time to write the kind of notes that the FA needs or really spend time with you to understand what's going on, you don't want to go to the guy who's got 30 patients a day. And that's what your insurance doctor is being forced to do in order to make ends meet or meet the administrative overlords that they're dealing with, right? They're, they might be in private practice, but they're probably not the owner of their private practice. So they're just an employee, they're a cog in the machine. And, you know, those folks will say, well, I know you used to do 20 minutes, but now you're going to get 15 minute appointments because we can get we can get 16% more people in per day. And six months later, hey, we're going to drop these down to 13 minute appointments because we can get 11% more appointments in. How much time is your doctor able to spend with you in a 12 to 15 minute appointment? Not much. And then another way I look at that is how much do you pay for your cable bill? How much do you pay for your internet or how much do you pay for your cell phone bill? And nobody has any problems paying for those, right? Well, I pay $80 a month for my cell phone bill or I pay you know, $50 a month for my internet and I also get YouTube TV, which is another $75 a month. Um, but the thought of paying to go see your doctor like horrifies people and it, it, it drives me crazy. We, we recommend it to people and they're like, well, why would I do that? I have insurance. Like, okay, go ahead and go to a doctor that you have no idea who they are and have no idea how much time they're going to spend with you. Or you can start looking for a direct primary care physician where you're probably going to have 45 minute to an hour long appointments. You're going to have availability probably next day and you're going to pay them a fee somewhere in the range of 50 to $150 a month for that kind of access. I find this idea of direct primary primary care really intriguing. I'm fortunate in that my primary care doctor is awesome, and he's in that machine. And as we know, the job of publicly traded companies is to increase shareholder value every 90 days. And every place that you go see your doctor, it's a publicly traded company, most likely. So, most likely. Yeah. So the, the people at the top, that's how they're making decisions. Fine. It doesn't mean that's how your doctor's making decisions, but we have to be mindful of that. One of the questions that I had here, and, and you had, I, you kind of covered this, but I want to spend just a little bit more time here. Recently, I heard a statistic, and there's lies, there's damn lies, and there's statistics, but it was something on the order of primary care physicians issue something like 75% of the SSRIs given in this country or mental health medications given in this country. And that would make me, as a pilot, nervous about talking to my primary care physician about mental health. Uh, thoughts on that? Sure. There's effectively two things going on. So there are very needy patients who are just demanding, right? I need this and I want this and I don't understand why you can't just give me a pill. So that happens all the time. And then the other issue you have is like what we discussed with the grinder that some of these primary care doctors are in, and they don't have the time to really dig out the details and determine what level of care you truly need. And for them, a lot of times it's easier just to, I'm just going to give them a pill. And then you run into the scenario where you have both, right? You have the doctor who's in the grinder and the patient who's just asking for it. Well, why wouldn't you just give them what they want? How much, how much can it hurt? Well, if it's a pilot, it can hurt a lot. I wanted to back up and talk about 
seeking non-medical counseling. Do you have any favorite resources for pilots for this? A lot of that's going to be very locality dependent. So there aren't necessarily major national chains for that kind of thing. There are some groups associated with military that are going to be accessible for those folks like military one source, but that's not necessarily going to be available to the vast majority of pilots out there. So a lot of that is going to be driven locally. So it's tough to make any specific recommendations. Any thoughts about online services like BetterHelp and some of those apps and things? So I can't speak to BetterHelp specifically, but what I do know is a lot of these online ones, they tend to be quick to diagnose and quick to give medications. In my regular practice during the day outside of the Wingman Med Consulting, we will get certain folks who come see me and they're on three different psychotropic medications. And I say, how did this happen? And they said, well, I did a telehealth appointment with whatever company and it was 15 minutes long and it was a video call. And I have this medication for my anxiety and this medication for my ADHD and this medication for my sleep. And I just want to cry because it's that's terrible, terrible medicine. There's no way you can diagnose somebody with three conditions that require three different psychotropic medications in a 15 minute appointment. And all they're doing is causing harm. Now that doesn't mean they're all causing harm. And again, I cannot speak specifically to better help. So I'm not trying to badmouth them. Um, but people need to be very, very careful about doing stuff like that. And that again, goes back to having a really good primary care. There be dragons, so to speak. Um, right. I, I know that there's some, you know, peer support apps as well, where you can call and just talk to a complete stranger on this app about your problems. And I think that probably has a place in the world. That's great. But I think, man, the risks for a pilot are so high because the other, the person on the other end of this, if they know that you're a pilot and they decide to record you, well, you're anonymous until you're on the internet. So. Right. And there is a special trust put in pilots. Like we talked about at the beginning, you know, airline, airliner size aircraft are weapons of mass destruction. And so there is that extra special trust placed in pilots, which is why you have to go through the scrutiny of the medical certification, which is why you have to go through the scrutiny of all the different check rides. And that's another thing. People need to look at their medical as a check ride. It is a medical certificate, just like your airline transport pilot certificate or your commercial certificate. Your medical has an expiration date on it. And so you have to prepare for that medical like a check ride or you risk running into the waiting game. Right on. I, I do want to uh, circle back because I, I want to make sure that pilots aren't getting two things confused. The the union, uh, like ALPA Pilot Peer Support and some of those other programs, those are confidential. And one of the cool things about those programs, I think, is that it's pilot on pilot. And really, pilots more than anyone have an interest in other pilots continuing to work. But those programs are confidential. And so I, I encourage people to use those. And I, I mean, I'm as long as you do, of course, but, um, those sure. are, those are pretty low, low level, um, type interventions, but those to me are different than just going on the internet with an app and talking to a complete stranger. And whether you talk to one of those organized groups, like you're talking about where it's a, a peer, you know, group, or you're talking to very close friends, that's one of the things in aviation, other pilots really know what you're going through when it comes to the work and the requirements and the medical reporting and things like that. So if you're struggling, 
talk to another pilot. And if another pilot is saying, hey, you might want to get some help, it's probably a good idea to get some help. If they're saying, hey, man, I think you're totally fine or everybody goes through that, that's no big deal. Well, then it's probably not a big deal. But if there's any question from another pilot about what's going on and it's, and it, you know, and, and not a shady pilot, but one you really trust, um, then it's probably worth getting help. And then if you start at that non-medical counseling level, a good non-medical counselor should know when something is out of their depth and they might be able to say, hey, you know what? This isn't what I thought it was going to be. I think you need advanced help. And so then it's time to elevate to the medical counseling. But just like when we do our free 15 minute consultation, sometimes a pilot is very concerned about a particular issue and we wrap it up in 15 minutes and they don't owe us anything because it's really not that big of a deal, but they were very afraid of it. Same thing. You might start working with a non-medical counselor and they were like, oh yeah, we've got all kinds of things that we can try. I'm going to, we're going to start working on a couple of things in this session, come back and talk to me next week and we'll see how things are going. We'll give you a few new tips and techniques on how to handle these issues and we'll see how things are going after a few weeks. So they might be like, oh yeah, I think I've seen stuff like this all the time. I can get people through this in a matter of a few weeks, but they might not. They might say, oh, this is, you know, this is bad. For example, if you're having hallucinations, well, that's time for not just medical counseling, but that might be time to be admitted to the hospital for some significant medication. So there are levels, right? We're dealing with the obviously not full on psychosis level. Everyone, everyone agrees that you should not be flying if you're psychotic. We're dealing more with the depression, anxiety, PTSD. How are you doing now? Right? It's again, you can have had a heart attack in the past, you have to have recovered. You can't actively fly with a broken leg, but if your leg is fixed and repaired and fully strong again, now you can fly. So you said a couple of things there. One of them was hallucinations, and I want to come back to that. But I wanted to talk a little bit about PTSD. And, and the reason I want to talk about this is a lot of your clientele is military or former military. A lot of our listenership, military, former military. Whether uh, a pilot has dealt with PTSD personally uh, or not, they for sure know people who have dealt with PTSD. Yep. And they're just like a lot of the physical health stuff. There be dragons when it comes to VA disability mm-hmm. and finding help within the military. And then you get out and you want to get a medical. Do you want to walk us through some of the concerns there, some of the thoughts you have on some of that? So like some of the other things, if you have a history of PTSD and you have fully recovered, you should be able to get your medical. The issue is showing that you're fully recovered, right? And there is a PTSD decision tool for the AME. And as long as you meet all the criteria and you can convince the AME that all of your answers are the correct answers and they're not suspicious about what you're saying, then your AME can issue you at that time. So, but let's look at what PTSD is, post-traumatic stress disorder. So if you have active PTSD, that's like having an actively broken leg. There's something wrong. And that's what the disorder means. The disorder means that there is an impairment to your daily functionality to exist in normal society based on your post-traumatic stress. So that means you have not fully processed how to operate in normal society based on your experiences. And that is also okay as long as you're getting help and working to get better. 
But just like you can't fly with that broken leg, you can't fly with that massive disruption to your daily life. Would you like your co-pilot to have chronic insomnia and fatigue because of their nightmares from their experiences? Would you like that pilot to have flashbacks and freakouts because of bright flashing lights, you know, when the runway lights pop on? That's not who you want as a co-pilot, right? That's if you just read that to somebody on paper, hey, so your co-pilot today uh, gets about two to three hours of sleep at night because of chronic uh, nightmares. And oh, by the way, we, you know, you can't be running late because if they turn the runway lights on on your approach, he's going to freak out and take control of the airplane. If you're the captain of the airliner, you're like, okay, this dude can't fly with me. You got to give me another another guy. Meanwhile, the guy walks up and he's like, hey, don't worry about that. That's none of that stuff's true. I'm totally fine. That's the issue with VA disability that is current. And we go back to what I said before, the FAA assumes that the doctors who gave you the diagnoses are doing things correctly. So if you give a hint of PTSD to the VA, whether it's old and you're recovered or whether it's right now or whether it's not even true, they're going to give it to you. And if you walk out of that VA disability with a PTSD diagnosis, you're going to have to explain it to the FAA. And if it's recent, well, then you're not going to meet that PTSD decision tool. You're not going to you know, skate by with that because in order to get a VA disability by the law, it has to be a current functional deficit. Well, if you just got that two months ago, what are the odds of proving to the FAA that you've recovered in two months? If you were 50% dysfunctional two months ago, the odds of you being 100% functional today are pretty low. So that's the issue with um, stretching the truth or unintentionally getting things on your VA disability. And that is the primary reason why we started our own VA consultation service to help people avoid that, right? If you have PTSD, absolutely get that on your VA disability. Recognize that you need that leg operated on and you need it fixed and then you can fly. So you will need to go through PTSD treatment you will need to learn how to process that information and how to react to things in the future so that you are a fully functioning person going forward. And that's not to badmouth people who are still symptomatic. It's okay to have issues. It's also okay to get treatment and recover. I think that's a super important distinction. And, you know, we've been talking about all of this from a very practical standpoint and sort of what, what do the regs say and how do we navigate the process this conversation that we're having is very different from what is the reality of living with some of these mental health challenges. And I just want to take this opportunity just to offer some uh, understanding for the folks who are dealing with it and just make, sh- make sure that everybody listening knows that we're not dismissing the like legitimate real life struggle that is some of these conditions. We're more talking about dispelling some fears and myths and things so that pilots do seek help. And I wanted to bounce off of this. And I wanted to also make mention real quick that you've written a couple of articles uh, for your blog about PTSD specifically. One just that you published the other day that I'm going to come back to in just a second here. But have you seen people with childhood diagnoses that they you know become an adult and they start living their life and they think, man, I don't know that I ever had ADHD. Or if I did, I've recovered from it and I want to fly. 
have you dealt much with these folks or have thoughts for these folks? We have. Now, there's some interesting aspects to this. So I'll start off with number one. I had a pilot who uh, he was a military pilot and he had a childhood diagnosis of ADHD. I believe he's on medication for only about six months. Uh, they had the rec- They did not have the records because it was so much older. I think it was 15 years after the diagnosis was when he joined the military and applied to be a pilot in the military. And so he did not have any of the childhood records, but he was able to get statements from high school and statements from his college, uh, along with transcripts that showed here are the grades and there were no medical accommodations given, right? So they didn't grant him any medical accommodations, which is typically what you get. If you show your college that you have ADHD, they will typically, you will test separately, you will get 50% more time or something like that, right? There are different accommodations that, especially in college, but I believe some high schools as well, they will give you. So if you can show, I've had no accommodations, I have not taken any medication. Now this pilot, he went through the waiver process for the Navy. So he was initially disqualified for his childhood ADHD diagnosis, and they put him through an evaluation and said, we don't think this guy has a current issue. So they allowed him to go ahead and fly. So he flew, went through, you know, primary, intermediate, advanced flight training in the Navy, selected for, you know, big wing aircraft, became an aircraft commander on a multi-engine, you know, big wing aircraft. became an instructor pilot in the T6. So when you're an instructor pilot in the T6, that's a two seat airplane with one seat occupied by somebody who's sucking your essay away. So you're effectively a single seat pilot in that situation. So he's flown big wing as an aircraft commander. He's flown single seat, you know, with essay suck holes of brand new guys. And he goes to get his FAA medical with me and he's telling me about this. And I said, whoa, Uh, we're going to have to tell the FAA about this because it is a historical diagnosis. But in this case, the requirements by the FAA are a little rigid. And personally, I disagree with them. So what I did was I made the argument that this was a childhood diagnosis with either extremely short-term medication use or no medication use, um, followed by no accommodations, and then real-world proof that he's able to fly. The whole purpose of the FAA medical process to get certified with a history of ADHD is to weed out the people who might have trouble in the aircraft. Well, we don't need to do that. He has real world evidence that he didn't have trouble in the aircraft by all of his qualifications in the military. So I said, effectively, he has negated the need for the neurocognitive testing that's part of the normal protocol. And I pitched it to my regional flight surgeon and they agreed and I issued him his medical. That takes a lot of work and effort on the part of the AME. That is not something you're going to likely get with your average AME out in town. So the other thing is the FAA's pending release of a new ADHD protocol. We made a recommendation based on that pilot. We made a recommendation to the FAA saying, hey, this would make for a good template for an AME, right? They can prove no medication since they were a young child, childhood diagnosis, uh, no accommodations in high school or college. If that's the case, the odds of them having the disorder part of ADHD are pretty low. And if they do, 
do you think your CFI is going to let him solo? Or do you think that designated pilot examiner is going to pass him on their check ride? Probably not. If they have enough of a disorder, it's going to get picked up on by the instructor or the DPE. And they're just going to struggle. If they're not medicated and they really have ADHD, they're going to struggle with the demands of being a pilot. So we're waiting for that new decision tool or whatever they're going to call it to come out. We were hoping it was going to come out uh, this month uh, in this month's update, but it did not. So, you know, hopefully next month. Um, so that's going to be an interesting one. But yes, so we have had some of those, right? Technically, if you have that historical diagnosis, you're still supposed to disclose it and be prepared to show why it's not a problem now. Wow. I am super impressed. I saw your guys' LinkedIn post about that announcement coming about um, ADHD certification without the need for the... Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> I only have pilot vocabulary. I didn't realize that you guys were instrumental in getting that done. What a, what a great... Um, we can't claim too much credit right now. We were at a conference in May with many people uh, from the FAA, the medical division at the FAA, and there was a lot of discussion uh, at this lunch seminar about ADHD. And I stood up and I commented our point of view from Wingman Med, and it was very well received. And one of the FAA psychiatrists said, hey, send me that in an email, and I'm going to send that to the team working on this. So. I can't, until we see it, I definitely can't claim that we wrote it. <laughs> if it comes out exactly the way I wrote, it sure will seem like we wrote it, or at least they adopted our recommendations. But if it's, you know, half, you know, again, we're not the only people looking at this. The FAA is making strides. They have come out with a situational depression decision tool for the AME, the PTSD decision tool. These are things that have only come out in the last couple of years. So you know, the opinion is chronically the FAA is terrible and they will not let me fly, but they really are working hard to try and make these things a little bit easier. They just have to analyze it. And, you know, it's the bureaucracy. It takes a little while to go through their analytical process. And again, it's a safety mindset. So they have to sift through the data and say, okay, this is where we feel if you can meet this criteria, you're safe enough that you don't need further evaluation. So I'm very excited to see what they come out with for ADHD, because I think that there are just a ton of people who were overdiagnosed as children or did have it and outgrew it. Um, and we'll see some people, there was a comment on one internet post, wingman med, you don't know what you're talking about. You can't outgrow ADHD. And I didn't even reply to that, but you know, I wonder what their PhD is in. That's a great, that's a great point. Well, everybody's an expert on the internet, you know, exactly. I, what are you going to do? I wanted to, that I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing about that. I'm going to, I'm going to keep my ear to the ground and, and check that out. Um, you know, when it comes out. And I, I think that's a great idea. It's not going to help the adult who's on medication right now. Right. Right. It's not going to help them. But yeah, but you know, I remember being 18 and like when I joined the army, I, I had ear issues and I remember just how crushing it was to me that that might stop me from being able to join the army, for instance. And it all worked out. I was able to, but the same is true for people who want to fly, you know, they turn 18 and they're like, they're, they go to college and they're like, man, college is going great. I ain't on meds. I feel good. And they want to fly, but they can't. I mean, right. how crushing for somebody. So, I mean, that's that kind of work is making dreams happen. So uh, props there, and I'm excited to see what comes out. And I want to circle back real quick to something that you mentioned 
about the D at the end of ADHD and the same thing for PTSD, the -hmm. disorder part of it. And I want to throw out a bit of a scenario and you tell me if I'm on track here or if I'm not on track. So it seems possible that a pilot could be experiencing post-traumatic stress in in reference to some event they witnessed. Could be car accident, it could be an aircraft accident, could be the death of a friend. It could be they got mugged on the street on an overnight. You never know. It seems possible that they could be experiencing that post-traumatic stress. Go see a, early on, go see a non-medical counselor to help manage that, manage those um, thoughts or to deal with those thoughts. And in a fairly short period of time, it might be possible that after a few weeks, a few months, they're feeling better, things are good, they feel like they're normal and they wouldn't have to report any of that if it never goes above that sort of non-medical counselor level thoughts on that uh am i am i kind of getting that right Uh, no you're absolutely right one thing to add in though is think about it like a cold so you get a cold well what if you wake up one day and your sinuses are completely blocked you're not deathly ill to the point where you need to go to the hospital but should you fly that day probably not your sinuses are blocked. You can't clear your ears. It's not a good idea to fly in that situation, but maybe two days later, you're perfectly fine. So in the situation you described, you might be having a little bit of post-traumatic stress. Well, go see a non-medical counselor. If you're having a bad day, you probably shouldn't fly that day, but that doesn't mean you have a full on disorder, right? And this is where time is kind of a factor. Bereavement is a good idea is a good one as an example. So if you have a family member die, there is an expected period of bereavement and it is okay and normal for people to have some struggle with a family member death. They might even be crying. They might not wanna leave the house. Well, if you're crying and you don't wanna leave the house, you probably shouldn't be flying an airliner, but that doesn't mean you have a mental health disorder. This person just died a few days ago. You're crushed, right? But if you don't want to leave the house three months later and you find yourself constantly breaking down and crying three months later, you're outside of what is medically considered normal bereavement. And now you have entered what is likely situational depression or adjustment disorder or even possibly major depression. And so if you did not get that early help, now you've entered the realm of now I might need a full on psychiatrist and possibly medication. So your example is great, right? You still need to assess yourself. Am I safe to fly today based on what happened to me yesterday? If, if I were mugged on an overnight, you might not, you might need to take a few days off to get through that. And if it's going on past a couple of days, it might be worth reaching out to a non-medical counselor. As soon as you're feeling better, start flying again. And, you know, maybe you see a counselor a few more times and maybe things are okay. And boom, like you said, you've seen a counselor, it's not reportable, you don't have a diagnosis and you're doing okay. But that's when you don't deal with it and it starts to spiral out of control. And three months later, you find that you can't leave the airport by yourself to go to the hotel because you're scared to walk alone at night. That's a problem. That's disrupting your normal life. You've now entered the realm of disorder. 
I really appreciate that clarification. That is so important for people to understand. And I want to also just comment real quick on something that you said. You, you mentioned, you, you talked about um, what's considered medically normal. And that is absolutely not a comment on character. That is, from a medical standpoint, what sort of the majority experiences. So right. uh, that's not a, a comment on character at all. And I, I think for people who are in the midst of a struggle, that's a really important distinction. And I just wanted to, to offer that up to our listeners if, if anybody's in that situation right now. The next thing I wanted to talk about was your most recent article for the blog where you gave the example of a pilot who had PTSD recovered and was able to fly. And they you they took part in a clinical trial in order mm-hmm. to make that happen. And I was a little bit surprised about that. And I told you I was going to come back to hallucinations. And in particular, there's a lot of cultural talk about uh, hallucinogens as a as a method for dealing with PTSD and there's clinical trials happening and then there's all kinds of stuff happening down in South America where you can go and try these things to help you. Um, a what's, what is the stance of the FAA in terms of taking part in a clinical trial and B should we be cautious about doing a clinical trial and, uh, you know, with the use of psychedelics as pilots? Uh, yes and yes. So, uh, the FAA is not necessarily going to look negatively upon a clinical trial, but they will if they're using illicit medication, right? So if you're using medication that is illegal for use in America, that is going to be looked upon poorly. Um, yes, certain we can look at certain other countries and say, look at all the amazing things they're you know willing to try. Well, they're willing to try those because they're barriers to conducting research are much lower than ours. And America still puts out the vast majority of medical updates in techniques and procedures and medication development. And we are very restrictive in how you conduct a medical survey or medical research. So this was more of a clinical trial that he attended that was using certain therapy bases on a frequency as opposed to all new types of therapy and things that nobody else had thought of. It it wasn't, in America, a lot of research is what I call iterative. It's not all new. It's like, okay, well now let's try this type of therapy that seems to be showing success and let's increase the frequency and see if that's even better. Right. So that was kind of more the the clinical trial that he was involved in uh, or the research study that he was involved in. And the FAA is going to be fine with things like that. Um, But if all of a sudden they were doing something where we're going to take this known thing and see how much better it is when we start giving them mushrooms, that's not going to go over well with the FAA. Um, Now, you can fly because that being an illegal medication is going to put you on the substance use radar. Right. So, you know, do you, the question is, do you want to be a pilot? How committed are you to being a pilot? Well, then you should probably be doing things in a medically established way, not in a medically experimental way. If you're so bad off that your treatment team can't figure out how to handle you and you are in need of highly experimental and abnormal therapies, then you need to decide what is more important getting better or trying to follow the rules and being a pilot and then don't apologize right 
If you got better, try and fight it and get back to that medical, but don't get upset if it doesn't happen because you did something completely out of norm. Good on you. Drive on. You got better. Live the best life you possibly can. I I appreciate the clarification there. Well, we're coming up on time, but I wanted to carve out some time here at the end to make sure that I'm not missing anything that you for sure wanted to get to. Is there, is there anything I missed? Anything you want to talk about here at the end? Anything you want to leave with our listeners? I think that overall we covered most of the stuff. One of the things that we also provide is a subscription service. And so a lot of times people aren't sure, should I go to the doctor for this? Should I not? Or my doctor wants to prescribe me this medication. Is that okay? Uh, How's this going to affect my medical? And that is exactly what our subscription service is for. So we, you know, we'll offer everybody one free consultation, but it's just that one free consultation. And some clients think, well, I don't, I don't really have a problem now, so I don't need wingman med, but we also help prevent problems. So that's one of the things we're trying to do. Like if you call us because, Hey, this happened, I was in a car accident and this symptom is still going on three days later. What should I do? Okay. Well, you should go talk to this type of doctor to get that evaluated. And then based on what that evaluation says, we'll determine the next steps. But don't just try and hide that thing, right? Um, Ignoring problems doesn't always make them go away. Now, for physical injuries, sometimes it did. Ow, I banged my knee. Okay, it's probably going to be fine in a few weeks. Um, I coughed up blood a couple days in a row. Well, that's probably not going away on its own, right? (laughs) So, you know, it might be worth talking to us to let you know which kind of doctor you, you should go to to get that checked out. Um, so that's something that I think, again, you know, people will pay $75 a month for their cell phone bill. Um, but, uh, you know, they don't necessarily want the subscription until they have a legit problem. Well, by then you're already behind the eight ball. Now you're dealing with trying to prepare from a, for a bad outcome in a medical, as opposed to not having that bad outcome in the first place. Awesome. Well, I'll just, uh, Second, sending everybody out to wingmanmed.com to check you guys out for all of that. Keith, I really appreciate your time. Another great talk here on the podcast. And I really hope that uh, pilots will take this advice because I think you shared a lot of gems with us. I'm really looking forward to that new, um, the new rulings on the ADHD stuff. I'm going to be watching out for that. You can check out more from Wingman Med uh, on our TPM Pro section, Facebook, at Wingman Med on Twitter and on LinkedIn as well. To everybody listening, thanks for listening. Keep the shiny side up. We'll see you next time. Yes.